I'm Dominic. And I'm Ashley, and this is Two Off. So obviously the last three to four days have been really insane all across America and we felt like it would be timely to make a podcast episode about the legal ramifications behind the actions of police officers and the actions of protesters and how this all intersects with the Black Lives Matter movement. So Dominic, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, the first legal issue that we want to talk about are the statutes on the books that make it really difficult to prosecute a police officer. Uh, In the announcement of the charging decision of uh, the officer who who murdered George Floyd, uh, the district attorney there said that this was the fastest they'd ever charged a police officer. And that's, it took three days to meet the burden of proof Um, because police officers are given a lot of leeway with their use of force under the law. And as a result, it takes much longer to charge these cases. Three days is unheard of. Usually it takes months at a time. It takes months after one of these cases. Um, And so the first issue we're going to talk about tonight is just the extent to which the law protects officers um, and why that came to be and what the impact is now. Yeah, so the exact kind of breadth of law that protects police officers on the books is called qualified immunity Mm -hmm. and basically when you become a police officer you're given you know your gun your badge and qualified immunity and what that means is that since you are a police officer during your occupation if you have a charge or complaint filed against you such as in the example of police brutality it takes a lot longer and there's a higher burden of proof written into the system to charge police officers with crimes on the job than there is for any other citizen in our country. Yeah, and that applies not just to police officers, but to any public sector employee. Um, Technically, uh, now, technically, uh, qualified immunity can be extended to lawsuits about information. Now, most, so like when people file lawsuits um, for public records, technically, the qualified immunity protects people from liability there. However, most states have gone to waive in those cases qualified immunity um, with their Freedom of Information Acts. They've waived qualified immunity for public officials when it comes to the releasing of public documents because they recognize that there is a public interest in being able to access those documents and that qualified immunity, which is designed to stop government employees from being prosecuted in their line of work, is hurting people um as a result it's being so, abused yes. yeah yes, the exactly. phrase the phrase used in determining these kind of suits is the clearly and without a doubt violated a plaintiff's clearly established constitutional rights so obviously that creates a much higher burden for prosecuting any sort of government official or bringing a suit to them because you know I guess that the theory behind qualified immunity is that it prevents, excuse me, that it helps law enforcement officials to better do their job because they're not distracted. But what it really ends up doing is protecting them 
from the consequences of their wrongdoings and illegal actions because the proof, the burden of proof is so high. Yeah. So with qualified immunity, uh, it's something that has been passed down through the United States uh, from English common law. But what it is now is uh, it, it basically covers what, what are called discretionary decisions for public employees. So that includes police officers. Basically, the argument is that these are people whose judgment calls have huge impacts on other people's lives and that they need to be protected um, from that. Uh, as an example, university officials who make discretionary decisions are generally exempt from being sued under qualified immunity, public university officials, that is. However, uh, there's an exception to this, usually pertaining to civil rights law, um, and the, the, the standard is clearly established law or constitutional rights. So if somebody is uh, in a public position is abridging the right to free speech or is abridging the, uh, quali the protection from unlawful search and seizure, in that, those cases, they can be sued. But even then, there's a qualified immunity burden that needs to be satisfied. And it's one thing when you're trying to sue the government for a civil rights violation. That can happen all the time because a lot of states have waived um, qualified immunity for their officials when civil rights are at play. And in fact, the federal government has a statute on the books that when someone's civil rights are being violated and when that's the basis of the lawsuit, you can file a claim under uh, a part of the U.S. code and say that the qualified immunity has been abrogated or it's been waived. Um, and it no longer exists for those state officials because civil rights were violated, and that's what the claim is. That doesn't necessarily extend to your more traditional criminal and civil liability as we're looking at here. Yeah, and just to kind of summarize that, qualified, qualified immunity means that police officers and other public officials have to have a higher breach of, say, your rights in order to be held accountable. So this is basically putting law enforcement officers above the law, and it makes it harder for citizens to seek justice for wrongdoings. And that's just in the legal side. That's not to mention the immense amount of power that police unions, individual officers, and departments have, because they are a state-backed organization. They have funding. They essentially, as we see, can do whatever they want, including tear-gassing protesters. Right. Like it's, it's just ridiculous to me to even imagine that in this society that we claim to be so equal and have so many freedoms that the state still encroaches on people's right to <coughs> assemble, on people's right to exist. It's, it's just, it's really disgusting. And it's a complete, it's so, it's such a warped interpretation of what the purpose of qualified immunity laws are actually meant to do. Right. And there is a degree to which it's more difficult to charge a police officer because there is an inherent authorization of force with their job. The issue that we're seeing is that this is, there are cases that are clearly cut and dry, uh, just gross breaches of conduct. Uh, and we've seen those over the past couple of months with, you know, heartbreaking high profile cases of police officers failing to do their jobs. But because it's harder to point to specific statutes and it takes longer to point to different ways that you can abrogate that qualified immunity, it's really difficult to uh, 
prove cases against people who are accused of wrongdoing. And so sometimes, for a while, firing is the only thing that happens because the police department is incidentally covered by qualified immunity. Um, so if they fire somebody, they can't, they generally can't then be sued for it unless there's a civil rights basis for the claim. Um, but effectively, it does lead to all kinds of problems within government. Uh, just this fall, actually, and this is not remotely on the same scale, but I had a very small run-in with that um, because the University of Michigan has a policy that if students order things and the university thinks they might be contraband, the university confiscates the property. They just take it and hold on to it until they can determine that it's not contraband. The issue is that that's not how our legal, is that that's not how things are supposed to work. Uh, you are to be innocent until you are proven guilty. And the standard in, in violations of criminal statutes or codes like that is even municipal infractions is beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they're taking things away from you and holding on to them, the qualified immunity protects that unless you find a civil rights basis for it, um, for, for protesting it. And it makes it really difficult to then sue for injunctive relief or for the court to say, no, you need to stop this. And the same thing can be seen with, uh, there's something called civil forfeiture that lots of police departments use, which is if they suspect, uh, it's commonly used in drug, tra in drug trafficking cases. If they suspect that money, for example, is being used um, in, in drug trafficking, what they can do is they can take the money and then prosecute the money for being used in the drug trade. Um, but it, 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 I'm Dominic. And I'm Ashley, and this is Two Off. So obviously the last three to four days have been really insane all across America and we felt like it would be timely to make a podcast episode about the legal ramifications behind the actions of police officers and the actions of protesters and how this all intersects with the Black Lives Matter movement. So Dominic, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, the first legal issue that we want to talk about are the statutes on the books that make it really difficult to prosecute a police officer. Uh, in the announcement of the charging decision of uh, the officer in, who, who murdered George Floyd, uh, the district attorney there said that this was the fastest they'd ever charged a police officer. And that's, it took three days to meet the burden of proof um, because police officers are given a lot of leeway with their use of force under the law. And as a result, it takes much longer to charge these cases. Three days is unheard of. Usually it takes months at a time. It takes months after one of these cases. Um, and so the first issue we're going to talk about tonight is just the extent to which the law protects officers um, and why that came to be and what the impact is now. Yeah, so the exact kind of 
breadth of law that protects police officers on the books is called qualified immunity. Mm-hmm. And basically, when you become a police officer, you're given, you know, your gun, your badge, and qualified immunity. And what that means is that since you are a police officer during your occupation, if you have a charge or complaint filed against you, such as in the example of police brutality, it takes a lot longer and there's a higher burden of proof written into the system to charge police officers with crimes on the job than there is for any other citizen in our country. Yeah, and that applies not just to police officers, but to any public sector employee. Um, Technically, uh, now, technically, uh, qualified immunity can be extended to lawsuits about information. Now, most, so like when people file lawsuits um, for public records, technically, the qualified immunity protects people from liability there. However, most states have gone to waive in those cases qualified immunity um, with their Freedom of Information Acts. They've waived qualified immunity for public officials when it comes to the releasing of public documents because they recognize that there is a public interest in being able to access those documents and that qualified immunity, which is designed to stop government employees from being prosecuted in their line of work, is hurting people um as a result it's being so, abused yes. yeah yes the exactly. phrase the phrase used in determining these kind of suits is the clearly and without a doubt violated a plaintiff's clearly established constitutional rights so obviously that creates a much higher burden for prosecuting any sort of government official or bringing a suit to them because you know I guess that the theory behind qualified immunity is that it prevents, excuse me, that it helps law enforcement officials to better do their job because they're not distracted. But what it really ends up doing is protecting them from the consequences of their wrongdoings and illegal actions because the proof, the burden of proof is so high. Yeah. So with qualified immunity, uh, it's something that has been passed down through the United States uh, from English common law, but what it is now is uh, it, it basically covers what, what are called discretionary decisions for public employees, so that includes police officers. Basically, the argument is that these are people whose judgment calls have huge impacts on other people's lives and that they need to be protected um, from that. Uh, as an example, university officials who make discretionary decisions are generally exempt from being sued under qualified immunity, public university officials, that is. However, uh, there's an exception to this, usually pertaining to civil rights law, um, and the, the, the standard is clearly established law or constitutional rights. So if somebody is uh, in a public position, is abridging the right to free speech, or is abridging the, uh, quali- the protection from unlawful search and seizure, in that, those cases, they can be sued, but even then, there's a qualified immunity burden that needs to be satisfied. And it's one thing when you're trying to sue the government for a civil rights violation. That can happen all the time because a lot of states have waived um, qualified immunity for their officials when civil rights are at play. And in fact, the federal government has a statute on the books that when someone's civil rights are being violated and when that's the basis of the lawsuit, you can file a claim under uh, a part of the U.S. code and say that the qualified immunity has been abrogated or it's been waived. 
um, and it no longer exists for those state officials because civil rights were violated, and that's what the claim is. That doesn't necessarily extend to your more traditional criminal and civil liability as we're looking at here. Yeah, and just to kind of summarize that, qualified, qualified immunity means that police officers and other public officials have to have a higher breach of, say, your rights in order to be held accountable. So this is basically putting law enforcement officers above the law, and it makes it harder for citizens to seek justice for wrongdoings. And that's just in the legal side. That's not to mention the immense amount of power that police unions, individual officers, and departments have, because they are a state-backed organization. They have funding. They essentially, as we see, can do whatever they want including cure gassing protesters. Right. Like it's, it's just ridiculous to me to even imagine that in this society that we claim to be so equal and have so many freedoms that the state still encroaches on people's right to <coughs> assemble, on people's right to exist. It's, it's just, it's really disgusting. And it's a complete, it's so, it's such a warped interpretation of what the purpose of qualified immunity laws are actually meant to do. Right. And there is a degree to which it's more difficult to charge a police officer because there is an inherent authorization of force with their job. The issue that we're seeing is that this is, there are cases that are clearly cut and dry, uh, just gross breaches of conduct. Uh, and we've seen those over the past couple of months with, you know, heartbreaking high profile cases of police officers failing to do their jobs. But because it's harder to point to specific statutes and it takes longer to point to different ways you can abrogate that qualified immunity, it's really difficult to uh, prove cases against people who are accused of wrongdoing. And so sometimes, uh, for a while, firing is the only thing that happens because the police department is incidentally covered by qualified immunity. Um, so if they fire somebody, they can't they generally can't then be sued for it unless there's a civil rights basis for the claim. Um, but effectively, it does lead to all kinds of problems within government. Uh, just this fall, actually, and this is not remotely on the same scale, but I had a very small run-in with that um, because the University of Michigan has a policy that if students order things and the university thinks they might be contraband, the university confiscates the property. They just take it and hold on to it until they can determine that it's not contraband. The issue is that that's not how our legal, is that that's not how things are supposed to work. Uh, you are to be innocent until you are proven guilty. And the standard in, in violations of criminal statutes or codes like that is even municipal infractions beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they're taking things away from you and holding on to them, the qualified immunity protects that unless you find a civil rights basis for it, um, for, for protesting it. And it makes it really difficult to then sue for injunctive relief or for the court to say, no, you need to stop this. And the same thing can be seen with, uh, there's something called civil forfeiture that lots of police departments use, which is if they suspect uh, it's commonly used in drug, in, drug trafficking cases. If they suspect that money, for example, is being used um, in, in drug trafficking, what they can do is they can take the money and then 
prosecute the money for being used in the drug trade. Um, but it, it, it's support because the reality is I, I would hope that most police officers aren't looking at this and, and okay with this. And I would think that most are, are, are if not equally outraged, are, are furious because it leads to anger at people in their profession. I would think that just like any of us, you know, when, ta you know, I, I do tax consulting, when tax consultants get outed as fraudsters, that's awful for the whole profession. When lawyers get made out to be crooks, even though many of them are, it's awful for the whole profession. And I would think that the same would apply to policing, right? That when you see people do things like this, that it's not good for the profession as a whole. Whether or not you personally are good or bad or somewhere in the middle is irrelevant because your profession has been, you have a duty yeah. to stand up and enforce the law and what these officers that are abusing their power is doing that is subverting the law if you're exactly. a law enforcement officer and you're not angry about that you are in the wrong profession and you need to turn in your badge yeah and at the end of the day it it should be your response as a law enforcement as a person in an institution to work to de-escalate that because you can see, I think a lot of the difference in cities like Miami where police, got, there was a, a picture that I saw where police and protesters together just prayed and that protest stayed peaceful. You can look at cities like Newark, not exactly a city known for its reputation of safety. And yet there wasn't violence, there wasn't rioting because police and protesters marched together. Contrast that to Raleigh, mm -hmm. where there were clear lines, where police were throwing tear gas. Um, and of course, you know, of course there were agents provocateur in there too. There, there's no question about that. And those people should be condemned equally. But there isn't an opportunity for agents provocateur without there being an initial chaos, an initial degree of pandemonium. You know, yeah, I mean, if you see somebody who's there to instigate trouble for personal gain, you know, I would say kick them out because that's not what the BLM movement stands for. Yeah, and I think that while, while that is not, a, you know, I don't feel like I'm in a position to comment on the movement itself. I would say that for the most part, if the, the police, because the, the, the reality is everything I have seen has been that protesters want things to stay peaceful outside with with some exceptions in some cases the riots have not been the, the riots have just been an expression of anger in thinking particularly in minneapolis but in places like raleigh where it, it hasn't been as immediate i think the reality is that most of the protesters are trying for their part to stay peaceful and it is only after you know, looking at the rough timeline I've been able to establish, I wasn't there. So if someone was, please let me know. And Thank you, that. Claire Perry, but, for your thread. It was really helpful. Yeah, a lot of great journalism coming from student reporters, from citizen reporters, and then from the actual news media downtown um, was phenomenally helpful for those of us who for, could not be there. But based on what I could tell, it was peaceful. And as soon as tear gas was thrown, 
it didn't really matter what happened next because there was at, at that point the chaos was strewn and there was a window for people who weren't there to protest peacefully and i don't mean in this particular case i don't mean members of the movement who felt violent i mean people who were there specifically thinking about antifa who was not really there as part of black lives matter but was there as part of their own movement and they you know would come in and that's when things started to be set on fire that's when people started breaking windows and it's upsetting to see because the reality is that the people who were there to protest by and large were there to be peaceful and were there to make their voices heard because the reality is it's very clear they haven't been. Exactly. It's really upsetting to see the the external violent actions take away from the main message and the rightful grievances that the BLM movement has. And I think just something really concerning I know like for me, fire is very scary. And I was hearing from people that live downtown, the fire was terrifying because if you live in an apartment downtown, like mm-hmm. what are you going to do? You, you just kind of have to stay there because you can't evacuate because there's clashes between protesters, rioters and police going on out there and you can't really leave. So I, I just think it's, it's really scary from the whole public safety factor that people who are genuinely there to make their voice heard and be part of a positive movement for change that is so direly needed in this country could be hurt or could be stained by the image that other people who are coming in specifically to provoke the situation can cast on them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to bring that back though, the fact of the matter is that the police should not feel like they're adversaries with the protesters. No, like in Flint, Michigan, I mean, like the people of Flint, they have a real reason to be upset. And those individuals that were there protesting, the police took off their riot gear and they marched with them. And not a single person was hurt because the police supported their efforts to protest and turned it in to a moment of unity between the community and the police. And guess what? Nobody got hurt. Nothing was looted. They just worked together to make a protest happen. And it was a really nice thing to see when we continue to see images, like especially in the New York City riots, of police deliberately instigating situations that are escalating violence. And I think that that is the thing that is most infuriating, that on the one hand, police should be angry too, I would think, because like I said, it is a stain on the profession as a whole. But I think that on the other hand, police like the videos we saw from New York of the the car being driven through people that if any other person attempted that that would immediately be that happened in Charlottesville right and they got locked up for that because that's attempt that's attempt to mass murder I'm not yeah I'm not exactly sure what what you would charge in that case you could I mean there's a litany of charges you could press uh, you know Mm -hmm. provided you know you could yeah, all kinds of things you could you could go after. You could try assault with a deadly weapon because automobiles are deadly weapons. You could try mm-hmm. attempted behavior. You could try attempted. I don't know attempted murder. I don't really know what you charged there, um, because I, I can't. You know, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not expert enough to know what exactly that looked like, and I wasn't there to see it happen. But there should be 
the, those people should have the ability to know that the police officers involved will be held accountable legally. Because the reality is that that is so far beyond any respectable use of force. I'm not denying that there are legitimate cases for the use of force. But when you see things like that, it's and then you see the officers involved not be charged, not be prosecuted, not see any discussion at the state level of any of those things happening, you, you do have to look at that and say, well, where is the justice? Because these are people who are supposed to be protecting the community and instead they're actively driving harm into that community. And at that point, that's where qualified immunity really becomes such an awful thing because it, it, it's protecting not only, in this case, the police officers in Minneapolis, but it's also going to be protecting police officers who escalate the situation in other cities when it is completely uncalled for and when the use of force at that level is boneheaded and dangerous. And wrong, absolutely. I, I've seen some really, I guess, haunting images about police officers that are, you know, sent to be at protest sites and they've removed their badges. That's illegal because if you see a police officer with a badge number, then you can report them for misconduct, right? Like for that police officer, that pepper sprayed that little girl, people found his badge number because it was on him and are reporting him to his respective precinct. Mm -hmm. But to see officers wandering around armed with deadly force, not wearing mm. their badges so that people cannot hold them accountable, that is despicable. And people in law enforcement have a duty to see that kind of thing, to stop it, to call it out. I remember seeing a video about the police chief in Atlanta. Uh, she was actually there at the scene interacting with protesters, asking how she could help. And there were reports that a specific law enforcement officer there was instigating and using too much force trying to get people riled up so she sent him so she sent him home that's what a real officer does and that's what a real person in law enforcement does and we need more of these people to come out and to speak up when their peers are doing something wrong because then i don't really think the system can be saved if good law enforcement officers are not willing to step up and reform themselves and their colleagues who are not doing the right thing, who are not protecting and serving. Yeah. And I want to be clear that I don't look at this as a, for me, it is not a condemnation of the police forces in general, as far as that is a conversation that needs to be had. Um, but that is not what I'm specifically trying to talk about here. But the issue is with, the fact that the law protects, even if you want to talk about good apples and bad apples, which I think is not the right way to approach this. The, the, phrase, you know, the phrase is not one bad apple is fine if the rest, but it's one bad apple spoils the bunch, right? And so I think the reality mm -hmm. of the matter is that we need to have systems in place so that there aren't bad apples. And that's obviously not working. Because the reality is that if one law enforcement officer is bad, that makes the entire prospect of policing much, a much harder sell for people who are impacted. Because if you look around, like, in, like I mentioned with the story earlier about DC, if you look around and you see your community is 
hurt by the police force more than helped, then that makes it very difficult for the police force to actually protect that community. It makes it virtually impossible for adequate protection to exist. And so there need to be reforms in police institutions, massive reforms. There need to be reforms as to what police unions can and cannot do. They need to, it is simply improper for a police union to be able to, in an election for a mayor, in an election for governors in some cases, to be able to say, this is who we support. Because the reality is that these people, that it creates this vicious cycle, right? The, the mm-hmm. governor or mayor has to cater to the police union because the police union is going to get them elected again. And it's going to be a whole tough on crime issue that will continue to negatively impact people of color because while maybe not everyone in the police union supports that point of view, that's going to be the message that is pushed. And I just don't think that's something that we can stand for. Right. And a lot of the time, the, the, the unions advocate for more, for over-criminalization, right? They advocate for more Mm -hmm. criminalization. And that's one of the issues that has repeatedly been brought up in pretty much every issue of equity. You see that start to play a role when you look at the way that looking at drugs in particular, right? The vast percentage of drug arrests are people of color, despite the fact that drug use between them and whites is about equal. You look at the, you can always look at the disparate penalties for crack versus powder cocaine. You can look at all mm-hmm. kinds of, and the fact that so many things are criminalized. Like, I mean, it's, it's documented. If you can like see, if you can read or you can sit here and listen to this and just not believe in over-criminalization, I, I really don't think you can be helped at this point. Like the evidence is out there. These practices are unethical. And I think the reality is that that's the cycle that's created is that it, it, because there, is so, there are so many criminal statutes on the books and police unions generally tend to advocate tough on crime positions, that means the police are going to try and their mandate is going to be to be tough on crime in these areas, even if the reality is that the areas don't really need to be rid of the scourge of, you know, small scale. Oh my gosh, kids smoking weed. What (laughs) will happen? Right. I mean, I think their lives are put more in jeopardy if they are locked up, if they're taken out of school, you know, all that kind of stuff to go on court for, you know, smoking some weed than if they smoke some weed. I just, I cannot understand that. Right. And of course, that's not to say that some of these laws weren't written with decent intentions. But the reality is we see that the impact is not good. And Mm -hmm. our job now is to look at our legal system. It's to, well, I I actually want to take a step back. Our job now is to look at all of our institutions. It's to look at the way we do policing. It's to look at the way that our local governments interact with their citizens. It's to look at the way our National Guard is utilized. It's to look at the way we respond to these incidents. It's to look at our legal system. It's to look at the way we prosecute these cases, the way that people of color are prosecuted in charge, the way that public defenders are underpaid. There's Mm -hmm. not enough of them. You could pick any number of issues and point to them and that makes things worse. And so we have, we have a lot of policies, many of them very well intentioned, but we have to take a serious look at them now and say, no, this is not right. The impact is bad. 
and we are responsible for the harm that continues to happen as long as we and our politicians keep those policies in place. The longer we overcriminalize marijuana possession, the longer we issue tickets for jaywalking, again, all perfectly normal things that for most people, you look at that and you say, well, you know, I, I get the point, I get why it was criminalized. But the reality is that the practical impact has not been safety. You know, the practical impact hasn't been discouraging jaywalking. People still jaywalk. Everybody still jaywalks. The reality of the matter is it hasn't really discouraged the usage of marijuana. All it's done is impose unnecessarily harsh penalties upon people, in particular people of color, disproportionately people of color, and destroy community. Like, yeah. When you think about how these laws are implemented, they are going to feed off of the exact uh, off of the existing inequalities within the system mm-hmm. so every time harsher penalties for drug use or immigration or anything like that that is going to exacerbate the impact it has on the already marginalized people in our community it's not creating public safety anymore it's continuing cycles of poverty in low-income communities it, that's why it's so important to go out and vote because especially in communities of color a lot of times voting isn't made a priority or it doesn't happen. So people who can afford to take time off for work to go vote are the ones making the decisions for everybody else. And that's why I would really encourage people to have voter drives in their community, sign people up, do carpooling, get people to the polling place. Just make sure that everybody in your community has a voice and is able to see themselves represented within our local and state and even national governments. Yeah, and I think... I think uh, I'll close with this, that that what this has made clear is that even in a a reform-minded government, whether that's local, whether that's state, whether that's federal, it is incredibly difficult to fight entrenched policies, to fight entrenched beliefs. But if there is one thing that should that we should be able to look at and say enough is enough we need to change the way we we need to change this very structure of our criminal justice system from everything from the laws themselves what is a crime to the sentencing's requirements therefore to the actual prosecution thereof to the people defending those who are accused, all the way up through that legal system. If there you know, is one thing that would, should make us look, take a step back and say, no, this has to change, no matter how entrenched it is, it is the fact that we see people dying as a result of it. And we should never look at that and turn around and continue the same policy because that is tantamount to accepting it in the first place. Very well said. If we're not actively involved in educating ourselves and changing the system, then we're, we're not doing anything to help when we see that our brothers and sisters are in danger and that is not something that we will stand for. Because we could go on, we could have episodes upon episodes about civil asset forfeiture or mandatory minimums or drug criminalization or mass incarceration 
And that's, that's the problem that we have so many things to talk about that we are still talking about systems that have been in place for decades upon decades, but change is coming whether people like it or not. All right. That's our episode. Thanks for listening.